0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, Japan is taking notice as threats from China, Russia, and North Korea challenge global stability. The country's ambassador to the U.S. explains what came out of the recent talks between American and Japanese officials. And the Army Corps of Engineers is one of the oldest American institutions, serving both the military and the public. It's behind some of the country's most impactful projects. The Corps' commanding general joins us. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Prime Minister Kishida met with President Biden in Washington recently. That meeting comes as Japan announced it would double its defense budget over the next five years in the largest military buildup since World War II. We're joined by Japan's ambassador to the US, Tomita Koji. Ambassador Tomita, welcome to the program.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: What was the objective of uh, Prime Minister Kishida's meeting with President Biden and what came out of it?
2: Well, I think you do agree that this year, the year 2023, is promising to be a very cons- consequential year, not just for ourselves, but for the, the whole world, with the world in Ukraine, rising tension in East Asia, and uh, continuing impact of the uh, pandemic. And uh, by the way, this is a uh, very consequential year for Japan because we are going to chair the G7 process. So having a summit meeting at the very beginning of this challenge year, challenging year was very important uh, because our partnership matters greatly in taking on these challenges so it was so gratifying to see the summit turning out to be a such a great success You said it's a
1: success, what, what, what came out of it? Well first
2: of all uh, there was an incredible level of alignment of our interests and policies which quite frankly I have never witnessed um, in the context of our bilateral relations and also I should add the personal element. You know, watching the two leaders uh, engage each other, there was a genuine affection and respect toward each other. And uh, our, our two countries are connected at all levels, but uh, connection at the, the highest level anchors the whole cooperation. So that was a very important aspect of the meeting.
1: And I mentioned that Japan recently announced that decision to dramatically increase its defense budget. How has the security situation changed in the Indo-Pacific that prompted that decision?
2: Well, when I do speeches in D.C., I always say we, we Japanese, live in a rough neighborhood. So uh, I'm not naming names, but uh, you know, the new strategy, um, the Prime Minister just uh, introduced, uh, is a very serious reality check over our environment, uh, security environment, and also the statement of strong intent to bring our uh, defense efforts to the place where they should be, including, of course, the uh, defense budget you, you mentioned at the uh, outset.
1: And uh, typically, Japan has been very defensive in nature. There's been an announcement, there's been reports about uh, the intention to buy Tomahawk cruise missiles, which is an offensive weapon. Tell me about the defense strategy and how that might have changed.
2: Well, I d- the new strategy will not change the defense-oriented our security posture. Um, But as I said, uh, with the uh, uh, the situation getting more serious uh, in terms of our security environment, I think we we need to, uh, as I said, bring our efforts to the level that needed to to protect ourselves, also to to maintain the peace and stability in the region. So that is a reason why we uh, um, are making this effort and we've been engaging our you know, the friends and neighbors uh, in the region to, to reassure that uh, we are not changing our you know, defense-oriented posture.
1: Mr. Ambassador, you say that the, the security situation is, is more serious. Can mm-hmm. you be more specific as to how the rise, the military rise of China, actually affects the security of Japan? I mean, they're not going to invade Japan
2: well <laughs> i don't think there's any uh, immediate plan for china to invade japan
1: but uh, you know the,
2: the the rapid build up military build up in china has been a great source of concern for us and and uh, a certain aspect of uh, d- their d- behavior um calls for uh, you know greater uh, attention and uh, um so it's it's i think it's it's natural for, for the uh, the countries like japan to to uh, to prepare ourselves for uh, any potential uh, contingency but at the same time let me emphasize that uh, uh china after all is a second pop no the, fir- the, the 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 most populous country in the world deeply integrated uh, in global economy so we, we do need to submit in our relations with China. And also we need to engage China in the global efforts to address the issues like climate change. So striking right balance, uh, you know, uh, between the competing policy objectives is a very complex uh, uh, undertaking. That is a reason why we need such a close alignment of our policies between uh, Japan and the United States.
1: Has there been any reaction to that, uh, that announcement from Japan, from China, from North Korea, from Russia?
2: Well, of course I wouldn't say they are happy with what we are trying to do um, but I'd, I would say that their reaction uh, has been more muted than we expected. Let, let's put it that way.
1: How are the U.S. Um, and Japan working together for emerging technologies, for economic security?
2: Yeah, um, that's a very important question because, you know, as we start engaging ourselves in so-called uh, strategic competition, you know, there has been increasing awareness that uh, the maintaining our economic resilience and competitiveness uh, should be a very important part of our response. And uh, that is a reason why, you know, we, we, we are doing efforts to maintain, uh, you know, uh, our techno- technological edge, you know, protecting our sensitive supply chains, protecting our critical infrastructures, and uh, I think there is a tremendous opportunity for for two of us to bring together, our f- join our forces together, in making these efforts. After all. Our two countries are very deeply connected. You know, Japan (laughs) has been the largest foreign investor uh, in this country and the U.S. in Japan. And uh, we are both among the uh, technological leaders in cutting-edge technology. So I think there is a lot of uh, opportunity out there for us to exploit (coughs) to enhance our economic resilience and competitiveness.
1: Uh, Mr. Ambassador, what has Japan? What's the lesson that Japan has taken from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What has been the <clears throat> reaction to that? Well, the,
2: the the biggest lesson we are learning from the, uh, the episode in in Ukraine is the all the values we have believed in—rule of law, um, sanctity of international law, things like that—are very fragile. So. Uh, On the one hand, we have to double our efforts, redouble our efforts to strengthen the rule of law. And at the same time, we we have to uh, upgrade our deterrent and responsive capabilities once uh, this order has been broken. So those are the lessons we are learning. And also the the important lesson is our security is indivisible because what's happening in Ukraine can happen in East Asia.
1: And I just want to end by saying it was 111 years ago that Japan gave the cherry blossoms to the United States, (laughs) and we love seeing them in Washington every spring, so thank you very much. And Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for being on the program.
2: It's been a pleasure.
1: Low water levels and shifting weather patterns are impacting our waterways. The Commanding General of the Army Corps of Engineers joins us to discuss how they're responding. We'll be right back. The Army Corps of Engineers has a unique role. It oversees military construction and develops new technology. It also undertakes civil works like protecting and restoring the nation's waterways. Lieutenant General Scott Spellman is the commanding general. General, welcome to the program. Mimi,
3: thanks for having us on the program today.
1: So the Army Corps of Engineers has a massive portfolio. Give us an idea of about how many projects you've got at any given time.
3: Uh, Mimi, it's thousands of projects, certainly across the country, but also we're working on projects large and small in 110 different countries around the globe today. Over the past several decades, our annual program had been between 20 to 22 billion dollars Today, that program's above 90 billion and growing. A a, a fascinating time to be an engineer and to be in the Army Corps of Engineers. Well, a big part of your work is managing the nation's waterways.
1: Give us an idea of what that means.
3: Yeah, so this mission came to us, really was the foresight of President Jefferson, back in 1802 when he established the United States Military Academy at West Point. President Jefferson knew that we were going to need a cadre of engineers to help our growing nation an initial mission area that came to the corps of engineers was to open our nation's waterways so we can move uh, people and goods to market so today we continue to operate our waterways we own and operate 234 locks on the ohio the mississippi the tennessee river the cumberland the snake and the columbia that help our drive our economy i would just add uh, later in the early 1900s following a number of devastating floods on the lower mississippi and south florida where thousands of americans perished congress federalized flood control and that mission also came to the army corps of engineers and so today we own and operate 715 dams across the country so you can imagine just this historic rainfall that's falling on california 31 of those dams are in that state and and saved a lot of lives and property
1: You know, I was going to ask you about climate change because I would imagine that's having a big impact on your work.
3: It's something we deal with every day, whether it's our coastal projects. As a matter of fact, this week we were out in North Carolina serving some future projects that we have there to deal with this very uh, acute challenge in parts of our our country. But it also affects our inland waterways with changing precipitation patterns that we are noticing that affect the upper Missouri and the Great Plains.
1: The Army Corps of Engineers received uh, over $17 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Tell me how that money is going to be allocated.
3: Right, and so that uh, helps us get after a large backlog in projects that we had had in our portfolio. So a backlog project is a project that Congress has authorized that we have completed a study on. And at the time, before the bill, we had about $90 billion in in backlog projects. So this allows us to take a big dent in that. Uh, And certainly we're working with industry, we're working with our academic partners, partners to be innovative and get these projects in the ground as quickly as we can.
1: So, give me an idea of some of those projects that you would be using the this bipartisan infrastructure. Right. law. so for.
3: a number of uh, port deepenings. I visited uh, the port of Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, this week, where we want to take uh, the state would like to take that from a depth of forty-four feet down to forty-seven feet, and that would allow a larger these larger post-Panamax vessels to come in. So, there's a number of port deepening projects across the country uh, that we will address with this uh, with this funding. I own uh, five hundred seventy-seven federal navigation channels that were responsible for. And again, it's those navigation channels that help drive our economy. There's a lot of flood protection work, so think of levees and improvements to our dam systems that I mentioned earlier that make it more safe for the American public uh, for the work that they do and the recreation that they do out on our nation's waters.
1: You've um, also worked in the Florida Everglades and you do um, ecosystem restorations. What is that and why are you involved in that?
3: Right, so this was a mission that came to the Army Corps of Engineers in the early 1970s. So you can think of the legislative environmental legislation that was passed in that part of our country's so history. Think of the Clean Water Act or the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act. Because of our experience on the nation's waterways, whether it been for navigation or flood control, uh, Congress uh, authorized us to undertake uh, aquatic ecosystem restoration. So today we're working, you mentioned a huge program down in the, restoring the Florida Everglades. We're also working on salmon recovery in the Pacific Northwest and a lot of habitat and environmental work on every waterway in between.
1: You're, you're involved in cleaning contaminated and toxic sites. Are those only on, on federal property?
3: No, absolutely not. And so uh, in the news of late, uh, we have a program called the Formally Utilized Sites Remedial Action Program. So these are all of the sites that the nation used in the 1950s to develop atomic weapons. And uh, those waste products uh, were still in the environment. This mission came to the Army Corps of Engineers in 1997, and we are working 21 of those sites uh, across the country in cleaning up some of that that waste, a huge mission and growing mission for us as well. All right. Well,
1: General, stand by. We're going to take a quick break and then come back. Thank you. When we come back, we continue our conversation with Lieutenant General Scott Spellman. He's Commanding General of the Army Corps of Engineers. We'll be right back. We're back with Lieutenant General Scott Spellman. He's commanding general of the Army Corps of Engineers. General, another big component of what you do is research and development.
3: What's the Army Corps of Engineers role in that? Yeah, Mimi, so we say our vision in the Army Corps of Engineers is engineering solutions for our nation's toughest challenges. And I tell people for some of these challenges, we don't always have good construction solutions for. So I will give you two examples. I mentioned uh, our work on environmental restoration out in the Pacific Northwest. We have been in litigation since the early 1990s on salmon. Uh, we don't know yet how to get a juvenile salmon that's about three inches long off of a high head dam that we built back in the 1940s and 50s since the passage of environmental laws. So we have a huge research and development program. What's the best way to construct a chute, a ladder, something that will help us? So it's something we're working very hard on. The nation's experiencing drought. Uh, we talked about California uh, earlier. Um, For many many years we made hydraulic decisions behind our 715 dams when to release water after the rainfall had hit the ground and sometimes that's too late so we have a program now that's being driven by our research and development called forecast informed reservoir operations so we just had a um, atmospheric river hit california and in our projects several of our projects in california we can actually make decisions on water management to hold on the water or to release more water well before that storm ever hits the ground and you can imagine in a time of drought every drop of water counts and that's what this research and development program massive research and development. we're working to grow it that's what we we're trying to do
1: you know construction projects though are notorious for being behind schedule and over budget I wonder if there's anything that you're doing to look at that.
3: We are. Some of the challenges that, uh, that we're having of late deal with supply chain. And so recently at uh, Tinker Air Force Base, I was behind four months on four hangers that were going to house the new KC-46A KC tanker. And we needed a five-inch self-tapping screw with a three-inch washer that you can buy at Home Depot but I needed thousands of them, and they were stuck in the supply chain. And it took us four months to get those in in sufficient quantities. Uh, those, those roofs are now on those hangars, but th- just unexpected things. Getting Portland Smet to two schools that we're building in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, has been a challenge of late, and that has put us behind schedule. So we've revised our reporting scheme in the Army Corps of Engineers, where now commanders are reporting up on all of these issues, so we can work with all of our partners and with industry to get after them.
1: You know the uh, Corps of Engineers is obviously part of the Army um, but also it serves other military branches. How is that interaction um, with the other services?
3: So we do we do major construction certainly for the Air Force at time for the U.S. Navy but it's it's beyond Department of Defense so today we do major construction for the Veterans Administration for Space and Missile Defense uh, Agency and many other federal partners that uh, that that would like our assistance. As I mentioned earlier working in nearly every state across the country and about 110 countries across the globe for all of our federal partners.
1: I I wanted to ask you about those 110 countries. What are you doing overseas, and and how does that help Americans?
3: Uh, So these are projects large and small. So on the small side, it could be a small well in South Africa. where We're working with the State Department with a partner there. And on the other extreme, it could be uh, work that we're doing today in Poland. 113 projects that the, the Polish government is paying for that is helping NATO in its expansion and to also help our soldiers as we work uh, the current conflict to support uh, in Ukraine. And we're learning things from, from current events on uh, not necessarily the, the types of projects, but where those projects go. So it's, it's a dynamic time and a great, great opportunity, uh, a great time to be an Army Corps of Engineers
1: and you're also working with fema when there's an emergency how does that work
3: right so uh, we are fema's engineers during periods of national disaster so under the national response framework the army corps of engineers is responsible for what they call emergency support function number three public works and engineering and so that's everything from providing temporary emergency power say to a hospital or a communication center that loses power after a storm we place roofs on families and homes that lose the roof in these storms. We do infrastructure assessments, we do debris removal. We're doing debris removal today in California out in Santa Barbara. Uh, And again, it's all designed to help these communities get back up on their feet as quickly as possible.
1: Your budget, as you mentioned, is over $90 billion. Give me an idea of the size and the makeup of your workforce.
3: All right, so today we are blessed with thirty eight thousand uh, men and women in the Army Corps of Engineers. Only eight hundred of those are military personnel, like me. Uh, the other are incredibly talented civilians, engineers from all disciplines, public affairs specialists, attorneys. Um, and we say people are our number one priority in the Army Corps of Engineers and we're working on our hard on our leader development programs because we're working on the next senior executives that are going to help us deliver this massive program in the, uh, in the years ahead. Are you having any trouble recruiting? Because I would imagine it's, it's such a cool place to work. Uh, people want to work for the Army Corps of Engineers because I tell people we're not building Walmarts, right? Every, most of our projects are unique, they're one of a kind and it is a fascinating place to uh, to work. The Army, as you know, is having a recruiting challenge at the time. Our industry partners in the construction trades are also having a recruiting challenge. So every opportunity I get, I love to talk to young men and women. And maybe college is not for them, or not for them right now. And these young men and women can make a great living out in the, uh, the trades.
1: I can't let you go until you tell me about the cat calendar. The, the Portland District recently
3: published a calendar. What's that about? Uh, we're always after some innovation, and they certainly found some in our public affairs space. We had a challenge out in the Pacific Northwest, keeping people off of levees during flood season, keeping people off of jetties that go well out into the Pacific Ocean and people falling off these uh, jetties and getting hurt. Uh, we tried a number of different ways to communicate with the public. Someone had the idea, let's put a big cat on our safety <laughs> messages and public started paying attention to this more and more and they made a calendar out of it. So I told the team, whatever keeps people safe, use it.
1: All right, well, General, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, great to be here.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24/7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
4: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today, and as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high speed satellite internet service
4: it is it is it's a very exciting service we launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it gen which was known as gen 4 that are called high throughput satellites and these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level this is a service that we sell to our consumers we sell it in a more robust fashion to Um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government.
1: Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning.
4: We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services, and we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it